Uh, hello friends, um, this is Michael Zuloff and welcome to the second episode of So Poetry. I'm sitting in the very cozy house of uh, Anthony Mall, who is the guest for this episode. Um, yes, I actually have a guest for this episode and this will be kind of the, probably the setup from now on. Um, unless there's, for any reason, I can't either get a guest or there's just something that I need to say and it work better with just me by myself. Um, but, like I said, I'm here with Anthony Mall, uh, recording in his living room surrounded by a bunch of awesome books and his partner, Emery, reading on the stairs. Um, and a cutout of Joe Biden in the corner. Which is kind of weird, but definitely makes sense for their house. Um, so... Yeah, I'm going to talk to Anthony now. Should I give an introduction or anything? Yeah, if you want. Okay. Talk about yourself for a little bit. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Anthony Mall. Um, I live and work and study here in Baltimore City. Um, I'm a poet and an essayist. Um, most of my work revolves around queerness um, in, in some way or another. I write for a gay publication. Um, a lot of my poetry is very queer. Um, and, and queerness influences the poetry right that's that's not inherently queer um, I teach at a couple local universities in the area um, and I'm currently pursuing a, a PhD at one of the universities in the area as well um, so I'm excited to be the first guest on so poetry um, you have yeah. to get the right amount of points of ellipses in the in between the <laughs> yeah. so and the poetry You're like no it's not so poetry it's so poetry yeah um, yeah, so, uh, full disclosure, I've actually been at Anthony's house since, uh, like 11 or so. Um, I'm currently in the process of laying out, um, a collection or chapbook of Anthony's that I'm publishing through my press, um, Akinoga Press. Um, so we've been, for the last, oh, we took a break for lunch. Um, shout out to Luigi's for anybody in Hamden, go there and eat good food. Um. We need them to sponsor us in kind oh, yeah. next time I mean, for saying that. Yeah, note to self and everybody else. Remind me to get Louis Juice to sponsor us. Um, anyway, so we've been we spent a good chunk of the day talking about book layouts and just kind of poetry in general. We spent a nice little chunk of time um, looking up quotes by Howard Zinn and yep, Noam Howard, Chomsky yep. um, for the epigraph of his book. Um. I will probably be throwing up some information about Anthony's, um, the upcoming publication and stuff on one of my two tumblers in the near future, so I'll keep everybody, whenever I do that, I'll make some notes on the SoundCloud. Um, and if you follow me on Twitter, which I should probably get that information out too, um, as well as Anthony has a Tumblr and a Twitter, um, which I can put up. Yeah, I'm at anthonymall.tumblr.com or at anthonywmall. On Instagram and Twitter. Um, yeah. Um, so, poetry. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty fucking good. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. I I love poetry. Uh, I'm actually sort of a new convert to poetry. I think I. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Like, when when did you start? I guess when was your first exposure to reading it, and when did you start writing it? So it's tough. It's tough to measure because it, it matters how what you call poetry, right? So okay. I think like for me, the roots of, of my 
their poetic growth come from listening to hip hop and punk rock mm-hmm. like middle school, high school there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't reading uh, page poetry then. Um, I sort of really resisted the page poetry we were introduced to in school. Um, I don't think I got into what, what contemporary and academic worlds think of as poetry until um, very lightly in my early 20s and then probably late 20s, early 30s is when I really passionately enveloped myself in it. But you know, I've been listening to and writing punk rock lyrics and right, yeah. hip-hop lyrics mm-hmm. since I was a, a young teenager. And I don't know that everyone would agree with me, but I definitely think that those are contemporary expressions oh, yeah. of the poetic tradition. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, like, I, I think that I came to poetry a good bit earlier than you did, but my first experience to, like, the things that I drew most of my inspiration of when I was a very early writer was um, lyrics to a lot of the bands that I was, I was listening to at mm-hmm. the time. Um, James Maynard Keenan was a huge, huge influence on me. Um, for list like for songs that because most of the songs that I listen to or at least a good chunk of them um, kind of getting out of um, I guess like the contemporary Christian music that I was listening to most of them rhymed and as I said in the previous podcast I'm not the biggest fan of like rhymed songs or rhymed poetry um, Michael working on my manuscript actually oh, yeah. occasionally <laughs> tried to edit out alliteration and assonance that he found in the manuscript and it was, it's a struggle, and I, I'm, editors, other editors out there um, have probably gone through, through something similar, um, like, working on your own writing, like, editing your own writing, I think in some, in some ways is easier, in some ways is more difficult. It's more difficult because you're a lot closer to it, and there's, like, if you love a line, it's a lot more difficult to cut it if, you, if you're in love with it, you know, it's like, if you want, if you might be the champion for something that you should probably just get rid of, mm-hmm. but... Um, I think it's easier because you, the more that you do it, the greater a sense that you have of kind of your own aesthetics and what you're trying to say and how you're trying to say it. So there's a lot of, like Anthony uses um, or employs assonance and consonants um, in some alliteration and he does rhymes too, um, which is part of his aesthetic. That's, you know, part of the, the, some of the tools that he uses when he writes. so as an editor reading somebody else's writing, it's difficult to fit, to see if you don't like something or if you think like something doesn't fit because it actually doesn't fit with the poem or if it's just, mm-hmm. it goes against your own, um, your own aesthetics that you've established and developed for yourself. Right. What's trying to distinguish between what's not working as well as it could be versus right. what's just not in your personal aesthetic right. as a writer-editor. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is probably a little more difficult for editors that also write because you have in your head like how I would write this or that's at least I think maybe for early editors until you get to the point where you can kind of separate that out um, you have a tendency to look at a line and be like oh I would say it like this which Mm -hmm. is really not what you want to do because the poem that you're working on or the, the piece or whatever it is that you're editing isn't your own work it's somebody else's work and your job as an editor is to get it get that piece um, to where it needs to be poetically which could be very very far away from whatever your own um, like personal aesthetics or personal choices that you would make if you were the one that were writing that poem yeah yeah 
which I've, I've, it, I was thinking about, um, just like different anthologies or different things to, to have, and I've, I've always been kind of um, enamored with the idea of using some sort of source material and giving it to a bunch of people and seeing what they come up with out of it. Um, so it'd be interesting to see to take like a source poem and give it to a bunch of different people and say like, hey, edit this as if you, like rewrite this as if you were, or like change it and edit it as if you were the one that was writing it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've, I've been curious actually, um, I read a lot of anthologies of poetry mm -hmm. and, and when I see uh, an author's name who I love is the editor of the book, uh, I almost always pick it up and I'm always curious in how it manifests for different presses and different mm. publications. Um, how much of this is just the curation of what poems go in um, and, and their hands off for the actual poems mm -hmm. and, and when that editor is actually working to polish the poems and how much of that writer-editor is rubbing off on the rest of the anthology. You know? right. like, yeah. Is there a bit of you know, Kevin Young in every poem he edits or uh, mm -hmm. Andrea Gibson I recently read? Uh, are all of the poems in her anthology right. little pieces of her mm -hmm. in addition to the, the, the poet? Yeah, which was a question that I was going to ask about, I think, kind of later, because I do, I do have my list of questions out, um, just as some possible road signs. But, like, with submissions or with contests, when mm -hmm. you have, like, a guest editor, um, Boat, uh, B-O-A-A-T, Press, which is an awesome, awesome press, um, had a chapbook submission that was open earlier in the summer, and as their guest, as their contest um, guest editor was Mary Rupley. Mm -hmm. um, so, I think on the one hand, it's nice to have if there's contests that have the kind of the rotating editors because, like, if you were to submit a manuscript and I were to submit a manuscript whoever the guest editor is might choose one of ours over the other one because of their own personal right. tastes or choices. Um, and so having like a rotating cast of people who come in and edit the stuff gives other people chances that, you know, something's going to stand out to Mary Roofley that's probably not going to stand out to like Jane Hirschfield or Mary right. Oliver or you know, like Sherman Alexi or you know, Kevin Young, any of those guys. Um, you know, I think it's important to know, especially for listeners who aren't really familiar with the process, is that uh, you know, Mary Ruefly is not reading every submission to that contest. There, there are editors and readers for publications who are doing the first screenings yeah. and sort of their subjective opinions about what mm -hmm. stands out is what gets forwarded mm -hmm. to the guest editor or yep. contest administrator, um, and they're selecting an already curated selection, mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, I always try to select for, when I, when I recognize the author, or I've read some of their work, uh, author or poet, uh, I try to, to curate my selection of what I'm going to send them based on what I believe to be their aesthetic. Right, yeah. I, I can't say this is a good practice or not, yeah. but, um, but I do that, but who knows, you know, that mm -hmm. Mary Ruefly or... Rigoberto Gonzalez may never read my work, right? Mm -hmm. um, some uh, some younger emerging writer who is an unnamed or barely named reader right. for the publication might just not like my work and it might right. never get seen. Yeah. And who's to say that even though that the the emerging like the person doing the first round of screenings, even if they didn't like your work, who's mm -hmm. to say that whoever the guest judge wouldn't? Right, right, totally. And that's not to dismiss no, right. those readers, because readers are such an important part, you know, if, 
if you a lot of these journals are uh, some of them are uh, are for money they're profit they make a profit they are supported by university in some way but a lot of them are labors of love you know uh, me and Michael a few years ago ran a journal that was purely labor of love mm -hmm. love and um, and so if you have a team of five who are doing this and not getting paid um, and just doing it because they love poetry they want to be part of the publishing industry uh, and they get two three thousand submissions um, those readers and interns who are doing the first round are really important yeah. to allowing that to work going back to what you said um, about curating like if you, if you were a first reader you would curate possibly your selection to a guest um, judge if you knew their work to their work there's a correlation with that to the auteur theory in film um, you know about it no, but I'm curious in the way that the film is really a okay a collaborative process. Yeah, so um, I minored in film studies in undergrad, so uh, theories and stuff may have changed in the like four plus years that I've been out of undergrad and out of this research, or out of out of like the kind of the academic world involving this. But when I was in when I was taking those classes, the auteur theory basically says that if you take the complete collection, like the complete work. Um, filmography of certain directors you can develop or you can see like certain themes or certain things that run through all of them um, so kind of the inverse of what a clo what close reading did with literature where you essentially abolish the author as the end-all be-all of what this particular piece is supposed to mean and subjugate like their interpretation into the myriad interpretations that you could come up with if you have support if you find support in the in the body of the text that makes your opinion or your view valid, which it opens it up to kind of an infinite a range of interpretations of a piece. Mm -hmm. Whereas the auteur theory um, is kind of the inverse of that, where it says that even though there's a bunch of people working on film and it's a very collaborative process, the director, as being one of the sole people that can touch most of the aspects of the film process, is the thing that's the unifying force of it. So if you take like all of Hitchcock's films, um, there's certain themes or certain techniques or certain things like aesthetic choices that he does that are mirrored or that the same, like looking at um, like the collections of a poet or of an author, that there's certain, like you know Hemingway, I'm sure had a bunch of similar themes. Philip K. Dick is like alienation and um, like reality not being what it seems or that there's something behind it. Um, so, and one of, the, one of the reasons or one of the possibilities that the author theory happens, like once you start getting directors that are established directors and they start developing their own style, is that people who work with them will start curtailing their own processes. Like if there's a cinematographer that's working with, let's say, Spielberg, and he's studied Spielberg's work, he will start, he will shoot things similar to other films of Spielberg's that have been shot. So they start like you mentioned and that you would curtail your or uh, like choose your submissions to the, the guest author based upon what you perceive their aesthetics to be people working on films will start doing things how they perceive the director mm. so it kind of it's like a feedback loop that re will reinforce these certain choices or these like lighting or camera shots or whatever right. um, so everyone's working towards a Joss Whedon aesthetic right. to make mm -hmm. a Joss Whedon film yeah yeah there are definitely people that um, they don't agree with the auteur theory that say that it can't possibly be 
like there can't possibly be one unifying vision because there's so many different people that work on a film. Um, for those of you who know the work of Sally Potter, she is one of the few filmmakers that I've encountered that I think could really be considered an auteur because she does everything. She writes, she directs, she does choreography, she does editing. Um, I think she's done music for some of her films. She's starred in one of her own films. So she literally is involved in most of the aspects of the film. So she, like her, her vision of it or her influence is a much more unifying, much more driving thing instead of just um, like a director who might be sitting at the top, but the assistant directors and all these other people are the ones that actually do the shooting or the cinematography or, um, you know, whatever. But, oh, so back to the whole like submission stuff. Um, it's really, really subjective, which, and even like I'm, I'm applying to some jobs and stuff now, and I've even been finding that, that this is true too, that like all of that is just subjective, that there are certain buzzwords and certain things that you can do to kind of wind up on, um, like in the ballpark, but it's still really kind of up to whoever's looking at these things that like maybe they get a bunch of applications that all look the same, and yours is the one that looks different, so they go with yours because it's something different, or maybe they get all the ones that look different and they're trying to find ones that are kind of more unified. And if yours isn't within that, that pile, you're not going to get chosen. Yeah, I think it's very subjective. I think, I think in both instances, applying to jobs and submitting work, there are trends mm -hmm. uh, and there are best practices, mm -hmm. um, but nothing's concrete. Yeah, the, uh, certain readers like certain things. Um, you might also just catch you know, certain readers in certain moods, right? Mm -hmm. Like... Um, certain things might speak to you more if you're the first thing you do in the morning is knock out a few submissions, right? Versus trying to squeeze it in, day. yeah, yeah. At, at the end of a work day, yeah. Um, I still think you know, like uh, good poetry, hopefully, uh, <laughs> will rise and 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 burn through that, mm -hmm. those processes, um, and I think that uh, a good reader um, can. Can, can spot poetry that yeah. uh, is incomplete or fails in certain ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's not a, it's not a useless process, no, but, right. but it's yeah. not a perfect process either. And there's also, like, with the kind of general practices and stuff, um, there are certain literary magazines that if your work doesn't really fit with their themes or their aesthetics, don't send them stuff. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Same, I mean, same thing with job applications. If there's a job that you don't have any of the qualifications for, you might be able to, to somehow, if you can get through the, the resume application, get into the interview, might be able to convince them that you could do the job. But, um, like, I if, if I saw a job as a, for an accountant, I would never apply to that because I have little to, like, negative amount of accounting experience. Right. Um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I think there are a lot of publications out there, uh, uh, like Toad mm -hmm. Magazine, um, Big Lux. They're really great, really great publications. Um, and my work does not fit their aesthetic, right. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to submit there not because I don't believe in them. I absolutely believe in no, them. Right, yeah. But that's, my work would not fit there. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that, you know, other work might not fit elsewhere. Um, I don't know, pop, pop culture poetry might not fit for... Plowshares, right? Right, yeah. I don't know if that's true. I don't know what plowshares are publishing. Pop culture poetry probably wouldn't work for, like, poetry 
magazine. Unless I, you know, was... you'd think so, but uh, last year they published a series of poems really? about Game of Thrones that are directly referencing Game of Thrones. Hmm. Um, and then out of know, the game, apparently. Uh, last April, they did a whole... Uh, the whole magazine was dedicated to... Um, hip-hop and rap culture and it's, oh, wow. it's interaction with poetry and so hmm. I think we have this idea that Poetry Magazine is the kind of highbrow like New yeah. Yorker of poetry yeah <laughs> yeah, it's a New York Times of poetry right uh-huh. but that it's the establishment of, of contemporary poetry but they're they are putting out stuff that is new and fresh and avant-garde at times mm-hmm. um, they're engaging in and maybe not as as well as they can, but they're engaging in poetry that deals with identity and and effective and well written political and social justice poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're not per- again they're not perfect, but right. uh, they're doing a lot more I think than people tend to dismiss them as doing. Yeah. Um. So this is a question that's on my list. The first one on my list, and it's something that I'm going to try to do my best to ask every guest that I have on the podcast. So, um, Anthony, as the first or the inaugural guest, what does poetry mean to you? This is a really tough question, right? Um, oh, and also, full disclosure, I sent Anthony um, these questions earlier in the week just so we could have a, kind of an idea of what we would be talking about. Not for him to come up with like a hard and true answer, but just to be kind of mulling about this stuff. So, I wouldn't, we won't run into a situation where I ask him a question and it's just like, I don't know, uh, I, I have to know. think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I didn't, I didn't write down any of these answers. I sort of looked at the page and sort of started thinking slowly about them. Uh, this is a particularly difficult question that I've actually asked other poets. Um, I taught last year an intro to creative writing class and, and one of the things I did was ask some of the poets I know a similar question. What is poetry? Mm-hmm. What does poetry mean? Those sorts of things. Um, and everyone has really varied answers. I think... For my composition classes that I teach, I, I explain poetry as the other side of the coin of prose, right? So at its simplest form, you know, uh, ideas in, in words that are, uh, that whose basic unit is the line and the stanza, right? But that doesn't, that's not what poetry right. is, right? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I don't remember who it was, but there's a really popular definition that uh, poetry is uh, painting with words. And I, I, you know, in that, in that, the image, um, in modernism and forward is the central, uh, right. the central driving force of poetry. Uh, that makes sense. But again, I, I think it's an incomplete definition. So for me, I, you know, I think poetry for me, my poetry, yes. the poetry I read and the poetry I write, is does a similar thing of the essay in the traditional sense of the essay, and that the essay. Um, derived etymology goes back to the meaning of a, a try, an attempt, right? And, and that's what poetry has been for me, is an attempt to make sense of an idea, a feeling, an event. Um, and so, you know, we get the Baltimore Uprising last year, and so I, I, I used poetry, both reading and writing poetry, to help figure out how I felt about that. And I think, I think a lot of poets are doing similar things. I can't speak for other poets, but um, but I, I get that sense that, and so it might be an event like that or it might just be a feeling you're going through an experience in your life and uh, you want to try and figure out what it is you're feeling what it means that you're feeling and so for me poetry is one of the most effective tools I have to do that so it'd be like um, so poetry as sort of 
exploration in, in a sense then it's like you you're employing it to um to try to come to, to a conclusion or try to come to possibly an answer about certain questions that you had yeah absolutely i i, I was talking um uh a couple years ago with a poet matt balk who's a local poet in baltimore and he he said he really liked something i had said about what is poetry and uh, for me it's not uh, my poetry doesn't say this is the way things are. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, I see things this way, and I feel things this way, mm-hmm. and what do you think about that? Which, uh, I, yeah, I, I think kind of at its core, um, like if you, if you really want to see how somebody, like how somebody thinks about stuff or um, like what they think or how they see poetry is probably one of the best ways to do that because it's I don't know it seems like it's a lot more direct of a um, like it kind of cuts to the center of people or the poets who are writing things more so than um, like fiction although I think that like personal essay also does it gets really really close like as as a um, as a prose form of writing I think personal essays or lyric essays, um, like memoir-ish type stuff, does a lot of the same type of work that poetry does. It's just, just in like a different format. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, I, I don't entirely discredit those poets and writers mm-hmm. who really write just to see what words can do. No, you know, right, yeah. The, the language poets and some avant-garde poetry and experimental poetry that is really just it's sort of on the edge of the boundaries of language, seeing like, the um, interesting things. Like Christian Bach. Yeah, Christian Bach. Um, Who wrote Anoia for those... He, it's all um, univocal lipograms, so it's um, each section of his book is composed of words that contain only, like, the vowel A, or, like, in another section, is only words that use the vowel E. And no other vowels. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but Christian Bach, but uh, you know some um, some internet poetry, poetry, and Google oh, Poetic too. Yeah, the the uh, guy you're telling me about, um, I think we were coming back from IKEA, and you were saying that there was somebody who was taking all these phrases of at like at the end of the day, um, like googling like the top the top results of like at the end of the day, and then getting rid of the at the end of the day and just using oh, like, yeah, whatever yeah, the yeah. following line. So is. maybe Michael add this in the the footnotes of this video. Um, I can't remember his name, but a poet I was working with in California, um, he was doing interesting things with what I think linguists call uh, preformed or pre-manufactured phrases. Um, and so he was using Google Alerts um, and other internet tools to search um, these phrases um, with modifiers at the beginning or any of the phrases um, to see what came up in the news that week and then removing the original phrase. So at the end of the day, this is like a pre-manufactured, mm-hmm. pre-formed phrase. Yeah. At the end of the day, the bottom line is those sorts of things. Um, and then he's removing those phrases and seeing what was left from the search results. And uh, it's just one of the ways that he's, he, he's just a, a linguistic poet. He wants to see what language can do in interesting ways that, you know, may be aesthetically pleasing. Right. Um, and so that's, that's not the poetry I write. And it's not a lot of the poetry I read. But I still think that's certainly within the field of poetry. Yeah, and I, I think that maybe not to the um, the extreme that language, like out-and-out language poets would 
use it, but I think that like your your employing of alliteration and some of the rhyme, um, I think kind of gets into that realm where it's 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 the content and it's the things that you're writing, but you're also tweaking with the deployment or um, the delivery of how these things, like like um, in in the the book that I'm working with on Anthony, um, the book that I'm working on with Anthony. Switch the preposition. Um, like he said, that there there are times that there's some alliteration that I was like, ah, I'm not a big fan of it. But like Anthony's, I don't know if it was it was your gut reaction, but it was definitely like a, a try and attempt just to see if that's, you know, if that if using language and putting in those alliterations conveyed whatever it is that you wanted to convey or added whatever it is that you wanted to add to like the piece mm-hmm. on top of whatever like the content right. of it was. Right. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's one thing we have to do, you know, in that free verse dominates contemporary poetry when you're using uh, the tools of traditional verse. I think you have to really consider uh, how you're using those tools, if you're using them um, in a way that is organic for mm-hmm. the poem right. uh, versus just playing with alliteration, playing with rhyme. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's fine. Play is an important part of poetry. Um, but I don't want to rhyme... Just for the sake of rhyming, like if I'm gonna right. rhyme, it has to add something to the. Yeah, or yeah. There's a reason that those words would be connected, or those sections, or whatever it is. That yeah. right. There's a context or a subtext to the rhyme. Yeah. And I, I don't think that I mentioned this on the first episode, but just thinking of thinking about like how you you use poetry. Um, so I I think personally, um, like this is my per- just personal opinion that a lot of the language poems and like language poets um for me it's it's so much of the craft of writing that they're really looking at the nuts and the bolts um like if you took a if you took a chair and really like stretched the the material like the woods or the screw or however that you connect with them like that's kind of the work that the language poets are doing they're taking like fundamental units of whatever this like what poetry is and really trying to stretch and see kind of what happens when you push and you pull on things. Um, and I am finding myself gravitating more and more towards poets that write really kind of unadornedly, like very plain spoken. Um, I think Bukowski is a, is a good example of this, although there are a lot of other poets that I'm gravitating towards more than I am with him. But he was he was the first guy that, um, that I saw this in. It's, you have these really kind of maybe kind of mundane poems that are really plain spoken, but they arrive at this incredible like moment. Like the heart of the poem is the arrival at this, like this poetic truth or this realization or this experience that somehow slips in despite um, the kind of ordinariness of the work. Um, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know really exactly why that seems to be kind of more in line with my aesthetics or kind of what I'm gravitating towards mm-hmm. but that's always I think that that's always been um, like I really I really like the themes and kind of the heart of romantic poetry but the artifice or the artistry mm-hmm. of it really kind of turned me off to a, to a lot of those writers that it's like it seemed like they were trying a little bit too hard or they're they're trying to make to turn poetry into this kind of like the New Yorker of languages, that mm-hmm. it's like this very highfalutin kind of, um, I don't know, 
intellectual-ish. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mind intellectualism in poetry, but the, I don't know the, if that's if that's the right word, but yeah. Well, I mean, one there there's a difference between I think the beauty of language and the language of decoration. Right? Yes. That where, oh yeah. Where it's an unnecessary flourish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and so, I, I agree. Yeah, and it, that along with the fact that just some people prefer some people prefer uh, modernist architecture, right? Brutalist architecture, and some people prefer. You know, Rococo, right, mm-hmm. and and Gothic, and I think that's there's a sort of similar distinction in poetry of mm-hmm. uh, uh, medieval or pre-modern poetries um, and modernist, postmodernist, um, regional aesthetics of Eastern versus Western poetry, and how how Westerners think of Eastern versus Western poetry. And I think that at, at least in my own development, like starting to read um, Japanese poets and Chinese poets. Mm-hmm. The fact that it really is like, very few words that are on the page that don't need to be there. It's like they really kind of just cut out everything except whatever that experience, whatever that, like the very heart, like kind of stark heart of whatever it is that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, versus a lot of Western writers that tend to kind of write more, you know. Which I like. I've I've encountered this with some Western philosophers and Eastern philosophers that it seems it, the general trend that I've seen from the ones that I've read, which arguably is not like a, a overwhelmingly huge breadth of philosophers, is that Westerners tend to um, like if they're trying to explain something, they'll kind of continue writing or continue talking about it in the hopes that or maybe with the understanding that the more that they unpack, that they try to unpack it, some they'll arrive at the truth. Although mm-hmm. it's been my experience that it just kind of becomes more muddy and more complicated and kind of more parsed and more segmented and like, I don't know, I don't know what the hell they're talking about anymore. Whereas in the East, it's very like, things are kind of boiled down to these very like aphorisms or these very simplistic sort of, even like possibly paradoxical things that like, this, this is how things are. And that's, they give you that, and it's kind of up to you to meditate and to figure it out for yourself, or like whatever, whatever value of truth um, you can extract out of that. But we've, you know, we've talked recently about your your interest in Eliot and yeah. how much you love proof rock and the wasteland, which are by no means yeah brief. No, right? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Also, I've found I've been tending to gravitate towards shorter and shorter poems. Yeah. Um, what? I I have a feeling I know what your answer is going to be, but I feel like I'm gonna, I should ask anyway. What, in your opinion, what is more difficult to craft, a longer or a shorter shorter poem? Definitely shorter. Definitely shorter. Brevity is difficult. Uh, Brevity is difficult to deploy and get your point across. Right, like mm-hmm. um, I could maybe I could easily go through the motions of haiku, right, mm-hmm. or or any other brief form, right. But to really get to what I mean mm-hmm. using so few words, so few lines, is a difficult thing. And so, you know, the the book that we're working on right now, it's explores the fib, which is uh, an American form that's very brief. Um, and there, 
uh, it was an attempt to just get, like Haiku, those glimpses mm-hmm. of moments, those snapshots of moments. Um, and so we've been working on those poems on and off. You know, they've been in the drawer several times, but on and off for two years. Yeah. Um, for a very short chapbook of poems. But I... So, one, that was not the answer that I was expecting. I thought you were going to say that they they both have their difficulties. But I, I thought you were going to take, like, the neutral, the neutral route. No, no way, no <laughs> way. I like writing essays. Uh, but I find, um, you know writing a lot and whittling it down is how I write longer work um, and, and that's not really how I approach shorter work and I just find writing sh- meaningful mm-hmm. short, particularly very short microfiction and very brief poems a lot more difficult than writing macro or even just long form yeah I one I agree well I guess this is like A of the, the one point um because, like, for short poems, every, I think for longer works, and, I, like, in novels, um, like, it's really, really difficult to make every passage and everything, like, shine, and everything burn the way that it needs to burn. I think that you have, especially if something's long, you have some, you have some room to let certain things kind of be workhorses, or certain, like, pages or paragraphs. It's like, if you have to get out what you have to say, and you can't really think of a, of a amazingly beautiful or well-crafted way to say it, you can kind of just say it. Because the story, it's like it doesn't end on that page. It's just going to keep going and you have many more chances to kind of dazzle readers with other things. Mm-hmm. With short-form stuff, every bit of it has to shine and has to burn. and has to be necessary and important and like pertinent to the work. Otherwise, it's not... It's very easy for those things to fall flat if not if like everything's not polished up to that to that shine. Um, so and on the one hand, on that hand, I think that they're I agree that they're much more difficult. Personally, though, I think short form things are much easier for me to write because I can't sustain the momentum or I don't have the stamina to, to do long stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost kind of out of necessity that I write short things. Like haiku is fantastic for me because I get short little thoughts about stuff all the time during the day, and it's just like a two-line thing, and that's it. There's no, there's nothing that I can develop it into. It's just like, oh, I thought about this, and this is kind of a short little thing is what it is. And it's it's nice to know that there are um, forms dedicated and kind of made and set up for very short, kind of quiet, small thoughts or small things or there's space for that stuff mm-hmm. um, the two that I was going to say is that I do think that you um, I think that one of the strengths of, of short poems and I definitely think that this is this comes across in your book um, which I feel like I'm going to say the title because I don't feel okay. like referring so the name of Anthony's upcoming chapbook is Go to the Ant O Sluggard um, which is a biblical reference I'll let y'all figure that out where it is and what that means for yourselves um yeah so it's go to the annals it's not a book of religious poems we should say no yeah it's not by any means no um which is one of the neat little like like the the book is full of these neat little like twists and kind of like snark and pretzel stuff and that i think is it's kind of one one of them (laughs) snark and pretzel stuff i hope that's on the back (laughs) um but anyway i think that you you achieve a, a lot of it. You achieve this with the books and go to the Anno Sluggard. Um, 
that with short poems, there's so much more room to leave to the reader to allow them to kind of fill in their own world around this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is, is good that you make the reader do a little bit of work, one, to make them do a little bit of work, and two, to, so that they feel like they actually have um, like a hand in the creation, or at least the finishing of these, of these works. Mm-hmm. That, like Your poem, even though it's a complete poem on the page, is really kind of only half done or half experienced until the reader comes along and reads it and then populates the space that you leave with the, like the short work with their own experience. I mean, I, I think that's true of most literature. I, mean, right, yeah. I think most literature, the, the meaning is only partially the author's yeah. and, and it's primarily the reader's. And it's something we send out into the world and the reader does whatever they want to do with that work. Yes. Um, yes. And I think that with short poems, at least especially ones, or I mean anything that, that implies more than it, um, than it reveals, or more than it tells. Yeah. And I think that snapshots, like the, uh, the little snapshots type, type of poems um, do that very, very well because it almost kind of needles you into completing the picture. That, and they're so, like, they're so concrete and they're so vivid that you know that there's a world that exists around that and it kind of goads you into like... You know, like throws out that little bit of a breadcrumb for you, so that you follow along and, like, like invites you. I guess is really kind of the term or the word that I was looking for. Invites you to, to kind of complete the rest of this. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it very easy, um, and I think especially with these with the poems and go to the end of Sluggard. Um, they're poems that a lot of people will be able to relate to. Um, and we could very, very easily fill in the rest of that world and be like, yep, I know exactly what, what this feels like. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the things, absolutely. Um, Alright, well, I guess we kind of hit one of the other ones. Um, what do you see as the role of poetry or the poet in, like, society within kind of like literary communities, but also beyond that and like the, the greater culture or society you know I don't know like do you think that there is just like one role or do you think that it's kind of like like a you wear multiple hats or that there's many different things that yeah I, I, it's tough to say right because uh, there are many layers of this one of them of course is that there's a really romantic view of the poet and, and art are coming to save us, right? And I'm not entirely sure that I agree with that. I'm not, I'm not entirely a nihilist, but uh, I, I don't know that the, the poet's going to save us, right? Like, mm-hmm. we live in a, an ugly world, um, and maybe poetry is one aspect of the solution to that, but poetry alone's not going to save us, right? So I don't share this romantic view of art as savior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also the element of, of what poet are you talking about, right? Because I think there is a place, a very important place for the poet of, uh, you know, the bookstore or cafe reading and you have these, or the academic poet, the poet who's touring universities and what those readings do, what those words do, for those who are still buying poetry on the page um, it's a specific, you know, subgenre of poetry, and so um, there's just some, some. I think in that it's part journalists, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, the role of the, the poet is documenting the world at their time, or if they're right. writing about their, their period, right? Yeah. There's just the creation of, of something worth looking at, something worth reading, something worth spending time with. Um, but then there, there are many other poets, right? Like, what right. about, you know, the, the, um, the slam poetry mm -hmm. in the bar uh, late Sunday night? We have a great series here in Baltimore called Slamageddon, um, and it's a, uh, a slam-style poetry, pretty regular. It's pretty youth-oriented. Um, and, you know, slam is much more uh, immediately political, um, it's much more, uh, it, it tends to be much more um, an expression of rage or anger or frustration in the contemporary world. Right. Uh, at least the slam scene in Baltimore, although I, I, I don't want to speak in generalizations, but that may be more widely true as well. Mm -hmm. Well, definitely, uh, I think that the, it being more political um, and I think a little more immediate with like that sense of kind of urgent immediacy, mm -hmm. um, I think it's probably true across um, across wherever slams like yeah. slam has like a foothold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we also, you know, like like going back to what is poetry, you also have the the role of the rapper as poet, you know, and mm -hmm. and I think Jay Z is doing a lot of the things we mentioned. I think Jay Z is is a journalist, right? Jay Z yeah. is also an educator as poet, you know. Uh, Ninety nine problems. He talks about <laughs> one way of interacting with police, right? Um, a journalist, an educator, uh, often an expression of rage. Um, I think rappers often are writing just as a mode of personal expression. They're writing about themselves to themselves, and it happens to be in a way that other people want to hear, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't like Eminem, right? But um, some of his meter and rhythm is, is gorgeous. Yeah. And, and he really feels like he's writing this personal you know, frustrations, sort of diary entry at times. Yeah. And so I think there are many types of poets and many roles for poets. Um, but I go back to, I, I don't believe in a romantic role of the poet as a savior, as the the singular answer right. to the world's problems. Yeah, but do you think that, um, like, the role of... Do you think whatever the role of the poet is, or I guess kind of the artist in a, in a bigger umbrella sense, um, regardless of what those roles are, do you think that they are necessary things to like the um, the health and longevity or of a given culture or society? I don't know. I think necessary is really blurry, right? Like, I think I think in part growing up in a capitalist patriarchal society tells us certain things are necessary mm -hmm. and I think that beauty and self-care and self-expression are often excluded from that category of necessary yeah. and so it, it's hard to think about necessary in a really clear-cut way. Um, I'm glad that poetry exists. <laughs> poetry is important to me. Um, and whether it's necessary, it's not something I spend too much time thinking about. Any more than, than any poet thinks, like, am I wasting my life writing poetry, right? Yeah, which, if poets out there, if you've not had that moment of, 
arriving at that particular door or window, you probably will, and it won't happen just once. I go through periods of like two, every two or three months, I kind of just wake up one morning and like, fuck, have I gone yeah. with my wife for the last like eight and a half yeah. years? Why am I not a software engineer making a hundred thousand? I have a master's, right? Why am I making less than thirty thousand dollars? Um, yeah, you know, there's a, there's a great poem that I think everyone out there should should look up. I think it's pretty easy to find on Google. It's uh, Cornelius Eady uh, writes a great poem called Communion. And uh, it deals with a lot of things, but among them, um, questions about the futility of poetry. Um, in, in, his, in that particular instance, um, after, uh, after September 11th, the, the attacks of September 11th. And so it's a pretty gorgeous poem that I've recently been exposed to. Um, Cornelius Eady is a co-founder of Cave Cana, and he's an absolute oh. genius, and I think he's important to the contemporary American canon, for sure. Um, when you write poems, is there, like, I don't know if this is the right question, but it's like, do you, do you write your stuff, or do you go into writing your stuff thinking that it's going to be published someday and that other people are going to read it, or when you write, is it mostly just, like, you're doing this exploration or like the essay in the literal sense for yourself and it's just like you're focused on that for yourself and then when that exploration is done do you think about oh hey this might be something that's worthwhile for other people you know I I, I don't think that you know I'm crafting something for sale right I'm not creating a product that will eventually be on the market uh, mm -hmm. and so I'm not writing for a future reader or um, writing uh, just for the purpose of publishing. Mm -hmm. But everything I write, I don't expect it to stay in a drawer. Um, I, I write expecting that it'll eventually be seen. And it's actually, and this is a terrible practice, so no new poets out there should do this, but I actually um, have deleted, I've gone back in my files and deleted very, very old poems that I now think are terrible. I've deleted them. And, and I think a lot of people think this is bad because it erases some personal historical record. But um, with, the mind, with the mind that everything I write will eventually be read in some way, um, I get embarrassed, right? But, but so everything I write, it, it's not intended right. uh, for the purpose. Mm -hmm. But it will eventually, I expect it to be read. Okay. Um, I, I recently, I wrote... Uh, for the first time ever, I've, I've been writing some things that I've been questioning how appropriate they are for me to publish. And so um, I, I've been thinking a lot about um, police violence in America, particularly police violence against young black men. And you know, you, uh, listeners can't hear this, but I am a middle-aged white man. You know, I'm, I'm queer, I'm working class, and so I have marginalized identities, but none such as right. the young black man in America has. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've written a lot of poems because here in Baltimore, this felt really immediate. Right. Both as someone who wants to participate in a way that is helpful, right? Mm -hmm. um, in someone whose city is experiencing this hardship. Right. Um, and as a person who's just really uh, disgusted and terrified of the way things are and the way things seem to be pointed and so right. um, I write about it because it has had an immediate impact on me and I've had to 
again, try, attempt to figure out how I feel about it. And mm -hmm. the results are, are, are poems that uh, I think are uh, good expressions of that, but uh, I'm really working back and forth on how I feel about a white poet right. writing about um, this occasion. So um, particular killings or speaking more generally about um, the uprising and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a really, that's a really, I think, kind of balanced and nuanced position to be, because I think it, it has to be a lot more, like, even though you're, you're drawing from your own experiences and the, the things that you see, and this is like relating how you see them, I think, I feel like it, like going into it, you have to kind of come at it from like an objective, almost journalistic point because like you you've experienced possibly some similar things or like you said like you there you you have you've experienced some like marginalization but not the type that a young black man in Baltimore right. have experienced right or St. Louis or right. Chicago or, yeah, yeah. Um, like if there's a Venn diagram they might overlap a little bit but you have not had like their experience so I feel like um, like there's definitely like a like the the privilege of of being, um, you know, like white in contemporary American society, like that's something that is you can't kind of get away from that when you're writing about, right? You know, race. I actually I had a similar experience um, last last year when the um, the uprising happened. There was a lot of I felt some really conflicted stuff, and I wrote a, a poem kind of about like my experience of it, and I was concerned about. Like I publishing it because it's like I didn't want it to seem um, like I was using um, like what was happening for my own kind of poetic gain, right? Um, and like I didn't want to, I don't want to come across like I'm appropriating these situations because I really like the uprising in my neighborhood and in my general kind of day to day life didn't really affect me, and I was. I'm kind of disgusted by that, that I, I had no real direct exposure to it. Um, like, it, it, even though it was happening in Baltimore, it was Baltimore, it was always like kind of elsewhere in Baltimore. Um, so I definitely did not, I don't want to come across as trying to like appropriate this thing um, that's been happening around me that I don't, like I feel empathetic towards and I definitely am, am concerned for like you know, the, the safety of the people that were out there during mm -hmm. protests and just kind of the general state of the police in the United States and um, their stance and their view on, you know, especially like the African American community, but just kind of like people who are not policemen in general. Because um, I've had my own kind of unsavory interactions with police, but again, it's like nothing compared to the experiences of other people. Right. That just, just general control and yeah. not systematic. Yeah, it's, and it's yeah. you know, it's like coming up against. Um, people in authority when you're you're kind of on like you're coded to be kind of on that team and they're still being dicks to you it's like if they're still being like if I'm if I'm uncomfortable dealing with police I can't imagine like how terrifying it must be for people who yeah. aren't you know ostensibly I, and for those of you who don't know I am um, I'm white I'm not I'm I'm ostensibly a cis male but I identify as agender um, but that's you know not something that people would really know looking at me. Right, you're red. Yeah, I'm, I'm male. You know, yeah. I come across as being a like a white 
cis male, which for the American society it's kind of you know weird. The like the golden boys, it's like we're right. we're in we're in the position of I'm I'm ostensibly somebody who's in the position of power and authority. And if I've had very uncomfortable and really kind of dicey situations with people who are in authority, like cops, it's like I can't imagine what it's like for people who aren't in the position that I am. Who yeah. Like, and you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of, of white guilt because right. I think white guilt is particularly useless. But I, I am trying to navigate, you know, like breaking away and breaking through white silence, which is the reason I might want to publish this poem right. versus being appropriative. You know, being yeah. appropriative of tragedy that um, has not immediately happened to me. Right. It's only secondary or tertiarily affected me. Yeah, and I think I think that there are certain ways that you can, like in the in the context of the presentation of it, you can say it's like you can say that type of stuff to put it in the, the kind of the right context. Like mm-hmm. one of the, I know that I'm going to get this quote wrong, um, but one of the neatest things that I've seen is there is a. Um, I think Warner Brothers released a DVD or they were doing like a, a run of old, like old, old 30s and 40s animated cartoons. Mm-hmm. And before the cartoons run or ran, they had kind of a disclaimer, not necessarily a disclaimer, but they, they put something on ahead of the cartoon saying that these things are like products of their time. Um, and they contain a lot of um, like narrow-minded and like sexist and racist and bigoted things. Um, and... Like Warner Brothers made the choice not to edit them because they wanted to preserve the kind of artistic integrity of, of the things, but also say it's like these people writing at this time, like they were wrong and these things are bad, but you know, we wanted to maintain this like to let you to give you this this view of like this is really kind of how things work. And we don't want to change history, but we want to alert you that's like this is not, you know, just because this is the way that things were doesn't mean that they were right. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention... Uh, did you hear about this? Um, I, I made sure I was getting the name right. Kenneth Goldsmith incident. I don't think so. Uh, he's a poet who read, uh, as poetry as performance, read the oh, Michael yes. Brown Odyssey. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, I, did, I did hear about that. And I think the community sort of... Um, divided on... I, I don't know that they've had divided. Oh. I think maybe there's some, some people who disagree, <laughs> but for the most part, the community is aligned against this is not an appropriate way okay. for a white poet to respond yeah. to contemporary American structural and systematic racism. Right? Yeah. Um, and that was, similarly, there was a lot of, um, like right after the uprisings, there was, on Facebook, people that I know that are much more in the kind of like social justice scene um, than I am were saying that's like, you know, when you're going into these, like to clean up these neighborhoods, make sure that it's like, to do what you can to minimize the kind of like white savior right. um, response. That's like, you know, not that you're going into, it's like that they, the people that are living in the communities can't take care of themselves and you're coming in as like, you know, the, the white kind of, the member of that society coming in and like, right. you know, I'm taking care of this for you. It's like, I'm, I'll, I'll take care of it. Y'all are right. good. But, you know, it's like as really an ally and as a support system instead of like, Standing next to them instead of seeming or appearing that you're coming like down to meet them. Yeah, somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know we're, we're running close to your your goal for this podcast. Do you want anything else before we close it up? Well, we could go. Over we could end on, end on poetry. Yeah. Well, I was gonna ask. Um. um 
Is there a, um, like, of, of the things that you've read, um, if you could pick out, like, one poem, um, maybe just at, like, right now that is something that is one of your favorites or is resonating with you a lot right now, and then one that is just, like, can't stand it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I don't know that there are, are many poems I can't stand that I read. I try not to read poetry <laughs> that I can't stand. Um... Do you, you know, think that there's any, like, do you find that there's any personal value in reading, like, you know, it's like reading bad writing, so you get, you get the sense of, like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. Do you get that sense of poetry that's, like, reading, quote-unquote, bad poetry or things that just don't, don't do it for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, I think, yes, I think there is merit in, in reading poetry as, as, as what to strive toward and what, what to avoid, the pitfalls too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the only thing that comes to my mind, because we've talked about it recently, is that uh, T.S. Eliot is uh, a poet that's pretty celebrated in modernism. Uh, I think that T.S. Eliot's poetry did really amazing things for poetry, mm-hmm. um, Western English poetry. Um, I don't particularly enjoy reading Eliot. Um, and that's okay, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's that's not the poetry I want to spend time with. And so, as a, as a from a scholarly standpoint, I'm gonna read Eliot because I should, right? It's it's, it's part of like the history that you need to know to be yeah. abreast yeah. of like what the current poet poetic yeah it's like, part contemporary of situation yeah it's part of Western contemporary poetic history mm-hmm. yeah um, but I don't enjoy reading. I'm not gonna right, sit yeah. down with a, an Eliot collection uh, to read for enjoyment. Right. right? Um, some that I love, you know, uh, uh, maybe not a classic, but a, an older poem that uh, I'm in love with. It's, uh, I think it's done a lot for my, the formation of my poetic voice, my poetic identity, is Dulcet Decorum S from mm-hmm. Wilfred Owen, mm-hmm. who, uh, for those who don't know, it's uh, a poem about some of the horrors of war. Um, it's it's particularly particularly powerful for me in that I really started exploring the poem in depth when I separated from the military several years ago. Um, so for me, it's it played a big role in my mm-hmm. my poetic formation, my poetic growth. And then more recently, uh, you know, uh, there are two collections of poems that have just wowed me, um, and that I've written really positive reviews over, and that's. Um, Saeed's... Uh, Saeed Jones? Yeah, Saeed mm-hmm. Jones's collection. Uh, and then Oliver Bendorf has a recent collection. It's his, know, yeah. it's his first collection of... His first full-length collection of poetry, and it's called The Spectral Wilderness. Um, and, and both books uh, I would call queer poetry, and both um, in one way or another, maybe it's not the primary... It could be the primary uh, topic of both, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, explore masculinities and expressions of oh, masculinity nice. um, from very different standpoints. And so um, they're both really gorgeous books and filled with poems that, you know, the yeah. poems, poems that make you go, oh! Uh! Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> the ones that you read a line, you have to close and stare at a wall for like, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm comfortable with going over for a little bit because I did want to ask. Um, and I feel like I'd be remiss to not ask this. Like, 
Do you feel like there have been significant changes in your poetic development since you started writing poetry? Or, like, have there been certain things, like, I, I can track mine through kind of, like, two or three kind of big fundamental changes. Like, have you, do you feel like you're kind of, like, just been nudged slightly on the path that you're on, or has there been something that has totally knocked you, like, into something else? Well, that's a really good question. Um, but before we move any further, while Michael was talking, I just looked it up, because I realized that I didn't say the name, but... Saeed Jones's collection is called Prelude to Bruise, and it's yeah. from a coffee house press. Um, Very good press. I've applied to a couple of jobs there, did not get them, but there's good people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're publishing genius work. Uh, Karen Tanya Rashida is also one of their authors, and they're incredible. They're really great. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think so. You know, uh, I think there's a, a bigger conversation that I hope everyone who has not already read up on it reads about, and that's uh, the usefulness, the merits. Uh, and weaknesses uh, of the MFA, right? But certainly um, starting and ending an MFA, both were points that really altered my trajectory as a poet. Because mm -hmm. um, when, did, when did you actually start writing poetry? Was it in the program? No, so again, oh. I was, go ahead. Also, um, for those of you who don't know, Anthony and I started the University of Baltimore's MFA program together in 2011, and we graduated together in May of 2014. That sounds right. Um, so last year. So we've been, um, he was actually one of the first friends that I made in Baltimore. Um, I think it was after our orientation, we were hanging out, um, and one of us started talking to the other one, and we've been, he's been one of my best friends in Baltimore. And um, so we've been like in classes, and we've talked about a lot of this stuff over the years. Um, so, yes, the, I was chuckling about the merits of the MFA thing because we, we both have one. Um, yeah. <laughs> for, for what it's worth, whatever it's worth. Yeah. But yeah. anyway. And just to be clear, uh, my position is that uh, the MFA is not a golden ticket, but it was nice that I had the opportunity to concentrate on writing for three years. Yeah. So read more, form your own opinions. Um, yeah, but yeah. When, when did you start writing poetry, like really start writing it in the program, or were you dabbling with it beforehand? I was dabbling before. So again, I was writing music lyrics okay. in my teens. Yeah. I was writing bad poetry through my 20s. Um, but there are a couple poets that I was exposed to, both that we read, mm -hmm. but also uh, poets that um, we, we, we taught at UB. Um, uh, uh, Aishin Hutchinson is... a brilliant poet. I think he's up at Cornell now. Somewhere but he had a brief period uh, at University of Baltimore, and I got to meet and interact with him. Um, you know, I never really read Rilke before uh, I got to the MFA. I didn't read it really in undergrad. Um, so starting the MFA and then leaving the MFA, uh, leaving the MFA and sort of like, uh, the MFA gives you the structure for writing, mm -hmm. and, and um, it, it uh, standardizes and sort of uh, builds your writing process and the structure that supports your writing process for you, yeah. which is really helpful uh, if you need to develop that. Um, but then when you leave, you really have to figure out on your own what that's going to be, yep. who, who you trust to be your first reader or second reader, mm -hmm. your editors, your if you want to do a workshop, who, who would you like to include in that workshop? Is it just the people you get along with or the people with similar aesthetic? And so having to think about those things when you leave the MFA, uh, that was another big point that really altered my poetic trajectory. Right, and especially because like in, in classes and stuff, you have, you're in workshops with people and you have, you meet regularly, but as soon as you leave, um, 
everybody is kind of back to their own lives and if you're not forced to do this stuff at a given time it's really difficult to, to kind of lock those things together and to, to meet regularly and um, build up that like retain that community for for your writing and the yeah. development of that absolutely um, speaking of process do you find that you have like one do you have one general process when you're writing poetry or does it like does it kind of depend on the poem or like whatever it is that you're working on at the time or it totally depends on the poem I think there are times where I uh, in this very sort of almost stereotypical way am struck by an idea for a poem or, or by a line or a phrasing and I need to get it out of me as fast as I can mm -hmm. and there are other times where I really want to meditate on the subject and I approach it uh, really thoughtfully intellectually um, in order to back into this emotional immediate uh, reaction in myself okay. and so uh, it really depends it, it absolutely really depends do you find that your process with writing poetry is similar to your process of writing memoir no no not at all not at all My, for memoir I really um, I really try to just get it out and get it down um, and then come back to Tweet it, it. Yeah. Afterwards. yeah, yeah, it's, it's, the revision is, revision comes much earlier and much more substantially. It's so little of what's on finished essays mm -hmm. is what I initially put in. At least for a personal essay memoir. I write a lot of journalism style essays too, yeah. and those go through less vigorous process on my end because I know that an editor is going to see them. Okay. Um, but for poetry, um, Poetry is a little slower for me in the initial development, and so revision uh, comes later in the process, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah. Um, so I know that you are a drummer, um, or have drummed before, mm -hmm. um, and I know that you are also like a memoirist, and like, take, you're a photographer, and you do like the, um, the journalistic like article type writing. Um, do you see any correlation between writing poetry and those other forays into like creative endeavors or do you feel like there's any sort of influence that happens in one direction or like crossways absolutely yeah so for drumming it's sort of I think it's obvious right and that poetry is I mean if we, oh, if we call poetry image and rhythm right mm -hmm. then it's sort it's of obvious rhythm. where yeah. photography and drumming would come <laughs> into that yeah so, wow um, for drumming it's rhythm it's it's uh, you know thinking of, of beats and grooves and how uh, how your written and spoken words might align to that or mm -hmm. mirror that even. And for photography, I think, you know, photography, photography is really close to, I mean, it can be, can, photography can, can simulate a lot of different types of poetry, right? The, mm -hmm. uh, the haiku, right? And mm -hmm. uh, whether it's uh, just a, a zoomed-in snapshot of something, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then also epic poems. You know, I like think of, like, uh, an Ansel Adams landscape being this, like, epic uh, nature poem, like eco-poetics or, um, mm -hmm. or earlier um, American poets who are, who are writing about the American frontier, right? Right, yeah. Um, and Ansel Adams is doing some of things in that way. But there could, there could be narrative poetry and... I think there of um, Henry Cartier-Bresson, who uh, is this, this stunning street photographer um, who's getting these, I think, really deep narrative photographs. And it, it can be difficult to tear, tell a narrative 
with a frozen snapshot, but I think poets like Rousseau really are doing that. Um, and so I think poetry does similar things, and I, and I think uh, I recently uh, participated in this brilliant art project. Michael also participated in this project with me um, called the Baltimore Frastic Project. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Um, we were paired with photographers, and the poets wrote... Visual artists. With, with visual artists, generally. You yeah. had a photographer. I had a photographer. Michael had a painter. Um, and so we were paired with visual artists, and that visual artist created new visual art in response to our poetry, mm-hmm. and we poets were asked to write new poems in response to their visual art. So we ended up, each each pair of, like, we were each pairing with, ended up with four pieces of art. Right. Um, like, our initial... Um, poetic and artistic are like visual submissions and then the responses to right. those to the original ones right um, and it was great uh, we were paired with uh, Michael's paired with uh, Lorraine Imwald uh, who's a, a brilliant painter here in Baltimore and I was paired with um, Jennifer Bishop who's been shooting photographs here in Baltimore for about 20-30 years holy cow yeah wow. she's, she's great she's really wow. fantastic so. um, that might be questions um anything you want to ask me yeah okay what are you reading right now um i just started well i just finished um uh hear the wind sing and pinball 1973 by haruki murakami Mm -hmm. um they're his first the first two novels that he ever wrote that had very limited um english transition uh, translation releases that were recently translated and kind of doubled up as a um, like a double novel. Oh, um, so his first kind of I think major one of his big first big successes in English was um, Wild Sheep Chase, which is the third in the the novel series like the trilogy of the Rat that was started with Hear the Wind Sing and Pinball in 1973. Um, so I just I finished those earlier this week and I started reading um, Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. Mm. As far as prose goes, yeah. Um, and I'm reading, um, well, I have a bunch of poetry books in my in my backpack that I kind of just keep with me that kind of rotate out. Um, but I'm, more so than I think any other ones, I'm actively reading uh, Caribou by Charles Wright, which is, I think, his, his most recent collection. Um, and I'll throw in, like, some Beidou or, um, what, else, what else did I, I picked up um, Leung Lee's um, Book of My Nights. Uh, not too long ago, I, I sent a friend of mine a poem out of there, and I've just been kind of carrying it around, waiting for the right time to, to break it out. Break again. it open, yeah. Because it's like it's Liang Li. None of his stuff, maybe like his one of his first two collections, um, might be summer stuff. But like Book of My Nights is such an autumn poem, and I've just been I've been carrying it around in my backpack, waiting for the the summer or waiting to just waiting for summer to die and the cool weather to come back, <laughs> so I can actually like. Legitimately, because there, and there's so much music that I have on my iTunes that I'm just waiting to break out because it's not summer music. Yeah. I can't, I can't justify listening to it. That's but, great. I think of music that way, but I, I haven't traditionally thought of poetry that way. That you have to wait. This is, this is the winter collection, and this is a, a summer poem. I found that more with, um, with writers like Ray Bradbury for me is a summer. Like I can't read him in winter. He's, yeah. a, he's a summer, um, he's a summer writer for me. Mm-hmm. Although, and Murakami is like winter maybe beginning of spring um i also realized recently that i don't really have a whole lot of novels like i haven't read a whole lot of novels 
I mean, I, I've read a lot of the classics and stuff when I was in, like, in grad school, I mean, in undergrad and grad school, but I didn't really kind of hang on to them. Um, so most of the stuff on my, my prose bookshelf is Neil Gaiman, uh, Haruki Murakami, Ray Bradbury, William Gibson, um, and, like, Paul Oster. And then it's kind of just a bunch of one-offs from other people. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of, like, sci-fi, for whatever reason. Yeah. But not, like, hard sci-fi. Kind of weird. Um, well, I guess with, with Philip K. Dick, much more, like, philosophical sci-fi and right. just general um, upsetting despair weirdness. <laughs> I, I was reading... I, had a, I took a... Um, sci-fi adaptation class as one of my last classes in undergrad where we read just a bunch of sci-fi works and watched the movies of them and talked about like what made a good adaptation and um so we had a collection of philip k dick stuff um one like an anthology of a bunch of his short stories that we read and we watched um minority report and chunks of um blade runner mm-hmm. and i was working on some poems back then and um my po- i wrote a poem called, I think it was like The World According to Philip K. Dick, and it's a, it's a much longer poem, but it ends with um, something along the lines of like, even when you win, they win, and you never win, kind of a thing, because <laughs> like all of his stories, like you you think there's, like, some of them are fantastic, because you think that you're rooting for the good guy, and it turns out that, no, you're not, and the world blows up, and that, that's how it ends, you're like, oh, this is... All of his books end that way. Every single True one story. of them. Minor report, the world blows up. Android Dream of Electric Sheep, no, the world blows up. Um, oh, Total Recall, world blows up. It's just it's one of his tropes. I think I think he really he just couldn't fig- he couldn't figure out a, a way to, to end his book, so he's like, oh, it's just gonna blow up. This is actually funny. Uh, me, go, me and Michael uh, several years ago published a story from uh, Michael B. Tager, a local Baltimore writer, and it actually does end with the world blowing up uh, in a really creative way. Yeah. And I think of that Taker's actually, I think, a Philip K. Dick adherent, so. Yeah. Um, I think that's it. So we are close to the length of the original episode, so I guess these podcasts are going to be around an hour and 20 minutes. Hour 20, yeah. Okay. Seems, I mean, a hundred, at least the last time I checked, 103 of you are willing to sit down for an hour and 20 minutes and listen to me talk. Um, and now that I have guests, it should be a little more entertaining. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me, Michael. That's yeah. really great. I was I was about to shake your hand, and I was like, I nobody out there can see me <laughs> shaking your hand. So I say that I do it. Wink. Um, yeah, I'm. I mean, I think that there's a bunch of stuff that we can still talk about. So I will once I, I run through my original um, cast of people that I wanted to have on. I will probably have repeat guests, and since. Anthony is, I have a lot of um, ubiquitous access to Anthony. He'll probably be on here a bunch. Um, Maybe we do poetry roundtables or poetry debates. I don't know. I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> and you have to, oh, for the poetry debates, you have to back up what you say with a poem. You have to respond in verse. Mm-hmm. Um, Pre verse or blank verse, or um, I, most of my answers will probably be haiku. Um, very kind of koan type stuff but yeah so this is episode two um i don't think that there's i mean i will listen to this again probably before posting but i 
So I don't think that there's anything that I need to make, make an addendum of. So um, this will probably just be episode two. Um, I'm well. I was going to talk about. So I'm recording this before, like well before it'll be up. I was about to say it will probably be up at a certain time, but not that it would make any difference to you because you act. People seeing out there listening to it will actually like see it the day that it comes up and don't need to be told in the at the end of the episode when it's going to be aired because they've already released. Anyway, <laughs> um, I ramble sometimes, so sorry about that. But yeah, so this is this is episode two. Um, thank you for listening, and I will see you metaphorically next time. <laughs>